Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, January 2nd by me, Rob Schaff, Pastor of Discipling. Today is a discipleship sermon that we sometimes do in between larger sermon series, and I'm excited for you to hear it. So check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. As the pastor of discipling here at Sardis Fellowship, it has been my job for the last two and a half years to try to figure out our church's comprehensive discipleship plan. How do we as a church Uh, From every age to every stage, from the cradle to the grave, how do we make disciples? What is our plan? And since I've started my role as pastor of discipling, I've had the opportunity to preach directly on the topic of discipleship at least four times that I can remember. Now, the first time that I preached was when I was fresh back from my sabbatical, and I got to share uh, about what I learned about, what was really exciting to me from my time away. And my favorite discipleship concept that I learned was this. As human beings, we are desiring beings. And that's not by accident. That's by God's design. God made us to desire. And desire is best understood not as a bucket to be filled, but as an arrow that is shooting towards a goal. And as beings who desire, everything we do brings that arrow of our life closer to the target that we desire. And in the words of St. Augustine, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Or, in the words of the Apostle Paul, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 3, 10 to 14. We are made, created by design to desire Christ, and only Christ will satisfy. Now, the second time I preached on discipleship, I was only one semester into my new role here at this church with my new responsibilities, and I was getting to know how discipleship works in our church specifically, what our church does well, what we love to be about, um, and how all of that works to point people and move people towards Jesus. And our church staff and our ministry leaders had just gone through starting this process of developing together the comprehensive discipleship plan. And my job was very clear. Take an inventory of everything that we're all up to, articulate it clearly, and then work with everybody to figure out how we can refine what we do to become better at it. So the important points from the sermon I got to preach the second time uh, was this. By intent or neglect, we help or hinder people in their journey towards Jesus by what we do and what we don't do, by who we are and who we aren't. Discipleship requires disciples to disciple other disciples. We all need to be brought to Jesus, and we all need to be bringing people along to Jesus. That was Sermon 2. And then, shortly after that, COVID hit, and it changed a ton of plans. The clear inventory of church activity that I was articulating got really complicated as categories shifted due to lockdowns and restrictions, but also just the changing times and the situations and desires of our people. And even though in December of 2020... The second time I got to preach disciple uh, about discipleship, I, I, I still got to preach. And there were these two main takeaways. One, as a church, why do we do what we do? Well, it's because we desire Jesus, to know him, to love him, to live in response to him. And any other motivation is going to miss the mark. And the second thing that was kind of my takeaway at that sermon was, if we are a church of individuals who desire Jesus, 
then the culture that we create together will motivate people to be formed and reformed and made more like Jesus, and that will permeate all of our activities. So whatever we get up to, whether it's big fun gatherings without restrictions or small studies in the middle of restrictions and a really weird time to be alive, as long as it is motivated by our collective desire for Jesus, we will be doing the right stuff. That was the second one. Now, as you know, this last year has had its challenges with COVID restrictions in constant ebb and flow. So for a while, we worshipped together exclusively online, and then we worshipped together in a parking lot over an FM transmitter, and then we worshipped together in smaller groups around the city. And on a rainy day, huddled up in cars when we were doing the FM transmitter thing, I got to preach on discipleship again. And I got to preach about how Jesus was serious about us loving others as he had loved us. I preached from John 15, where Jesus says, Love each other as I have loved you, and greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Because, you know, we can do some really amazing things as individuals and as a church, but if we don't love each other as Jesus has loved us, we've missed the point entirely. We're like an F1 race car with millions of dollars poured into its development, but somebody forgot to develop the bolt that holds the wheel on and it gets stripped and it costs millions of dollars of research and development down the tubes and the race is over, right? Like if we do all of this really complicated, fancy stuff, but we forget to love each other, uh, we're missing the point. And actually over the last few years, I think we can all say that it's been pretty hard at times to just love each other because these are trying times that we're living in. So soon after all of those radio days in the back parking lot, all of a sudden we were able to worship again in person uh, in large gatherings in the sanctuary once more. And uh, here it is, 2022, uh, and it seems like life still isn't really stable or normal, not what we expected. It's weird to preach a sermon series on discipleship with months or sometimes even years in between each sermon. So I'm going to do my best to summarize two and a half years of stuff that I've got to preach on that I've been really excited about having to do with discipleship into four statements. Here they are. First, you were created to desire God and you should accept no substitutes. Second, together we can help or hinder others in their desire for God. Third, if we want to be a church that helps, Anything we do must come from our desiring of God. And fourth, loving each other and others as Christ has loved us is essential to this whole endeavor. Now, with that summary, we come today to our 2022 Discipleship Sermon. And we're going to start this conversation afresh by looking at the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. It goes like this. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, it is clear that Jesus wants us to do this as a church. He wants us to go, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to obey. Now, being baptized is the start of a discipleship journey. It's what a baby Christian does to declare their allegiance to Jesus, basically. And obeying is what you do with the rest of your life. It's the rest of the discipleship journey. So really what Jesus wants us to do uh, is make disciples, right? Because baptizing them and teaching them to obey is just a part of being a disciple. Now make disciples doesn't just mean go and make new disciples. It means making genuine and authentic, deep disciples, people who learn and yearn to obey and follow Jesus in every area of their life. 
And it also doesn't just mean preaching to the choir. It means bringing new people to Jesus. Making disciples is about both the baptizing and the obeying. It's the start of the journey. It's also the rest of the journey. We are called to make the start, the middle, and the finish disciples. We're <laughs> called to make disciples on every aspect of their journey. That's what we need to make. That's what making disciples of all nations means. And it's the one job that kind of the church is for sure supposed to do. So what's the best tool to make disciples? We think to ourselves, with the right tools, we have the potential to be this well-oiled disciple-making machine. And it's true. Uh, with the right tools for the job at hand, uh, you can become much more effective at the job that you've been given, right? And we do want to be the best we can be and to do the best job we can, so we need to find the best tools. And now a tool is a device or an implement used to carry out a particular function like a hammer. A hammer is a really good tool for driving nails into a board, uh, but it's a really bad tool for painting a picture or drawing a picture. And a pencil is a really good tool for drawing a picture, but it's a really bad tool for driving nails into a board. Now a hairbrush, it can't draw pictures and it can't pound nails, so it is a horrible tool, objectively speaking, right? Well, if pounding nails and drawing pictures were the only two jobs, uh, that would be true, but of course they're not, right? You need a hairbrush to brush your hair. Pencils and hammers are really horrible tools for brushing hair. So, I say all of this because I'm trying to make an obvious point. Different jobs require different tools. But in the words of Abraham Maslow, I suppose it is tempting... Oh, I didn't put that PowerPoint slide. That's okay. In the words of Abraham Maslow, I suppose it is tempting, if the only tool you have is a hammer, to treat everything as if it were a nail. Here's my point. When it comes to making disciples, there isn't just one tool because it isn't just one job. Sometimes people make disciples in a way that is trying to pound a nail with a pencil. It's not very effective, but we just keep doing it uh, because, you know, it'll work eventually. Or sometimes all you have is a hammer, and so everybody starts to look like a nail. And a lot of paper gets absolutely torn to pieces and destroyed. Meanwhile, everybody that isn't a pencil or a hammer sits around doing nothing because they don't feel like they can. Here's the point. There is no disciple-making hammer because people are not nails. People are unique, each with their own desires, their own makeups, who need to be met where they are at with the truth of Jesus. Now, here's an example of five people I know personally and how they started their discipleship journey. One person comes to be a disciple of Christ after a near-death supernatural encounter with the living God. One person comes to be a disciple of Jesus after being handed a tract about how they are going to hell if they don't repent of their sin. One person comes to be a disciple of Jesus after a lifetime steeped in the church and baby steps towards a living relationship with God. One person becomes a disciple after attending an alpha course that is led by a coworker. And one person comes to be a disciple after reading The Watchmen, which is a graphic novel, and realizing that our world is full of lies, but the faith that they were raised in is full of truth. So I ask you, which of these tools is the right tool? Which is the best one to bring people to Jesus? There is no one right way to make a disciple of Jesus. All of them were brought to Christ in a way that met them where they were at. It was kind of like five different fingers pointing them to Jesus in different ways. 
but they were all pointing to Jesus. There are about 7.9 billion right ways to help people start being a disciple of Jesus. And there are about 7.9 billion right ways to help people continue to grow in obedience for the rest of their lives. Because right now in our world, there are about 7.9 billion people who need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Anything and anyone that brings people to Jesus and helps them to grow in obedience to Jesus is good and worth celebrating. So, here's what's important. What's best for one won't work at all for another, and it's supposed to be that way. God designed it to be that way. 1 Corinthians 12 is an incredibly full chapter where Paul addresses a church that is struggling to get what church is supposed to be about. In this church, people are envious with each other, and they have power grabs, and there's strange posturing, and at the center of all of this misunderstanding seems to be, well, what I think is best, and this is the best way to be. They thought that they had it all figured out, but they were hammers tearing through paper. They were a church that was hurting themselves, and they were hurting their witness to Jesus. And so Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6, he writes this, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Paul says, we have one Lord, we have one Spirit, and even though we're all different, it's the same God at work. The best way to be is in Christ, serving the Lord with the gifts that we have been given by doing through the Holy Spirit, the work that God has given us to do. But anticipating this answer would be unsatisfying to his readers, Paul goes on to make a list of the different kinds of working, the different kinds of gifting. And uh, N.T. Wright has compiled uh, through this chapter of Corinthians, as well as a couple others uh, throughout the Bible, all of the lists that Paul kind of makes to talk about the different ways that we are gifted. It goes like this. Verses 8 to 10 of 1 Corinthians 12 lists words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, gifts of healing, working of power, prophecy, discerning of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues. In verse 29, he lists uh, apostles, prophets, teachers, powerful works, helpers, and organizers. And elsewhere in the Bible, like Romans 12, to 12, 6 to 8, Paul lists prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, presiding, and showing mercy. And in Ephesians 4, 11, he adds evangelists and pastors and teachers into the mix. So then, the church in Corinth was framing kind of this question towards Paul as a multiple choice question like this. Paul, which of these is the best thing for the church to be doing? Speaking in tongues, prophecy, teaching, organizing, pastor, evangelist. Like, what is it? What's the best? Give us the answer. Choose one. And uh, Paul instead demonstrates how this is an entirely broken question. Instead, he writes this. Just as the body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so... The body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? 
If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. A body needs all of its parts. They are each important, not all for the same reason, but each for its own reason. Now, the Corinthian church, they loved speaking in tongues. That's what they wanted. But they didn't care much for helping each other. They were a body that was unbalanced. They were elbows and ears and noses and eyes that all wanted to be tongues. Because they thought that that was the real meal deal, the only true expression of a Holy Spirit-fueled faith, or at least is the one that they valued the highest of all. And Paul says, from helping to prophesying to teaching to healing, it is all from one faith in Jesus. It's all through the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's all for doing the work of God. Paul ends the chapter by saying this, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all all work miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret? No, of course not. Then he ends by saying this, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Ha! There it is, you might be thinking to yourself. Some gifts are greater. So, Rob, let's just focus on the greatest gifts then, okay? No, 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 no. That is not Paul's point at all. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul explicitly says, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You can't get rid of them just because they're not the greater ones. Now, you'll notice that Paul puts their chosen favorite, speaking in tongues, at the very end of their list, And then he says, desire the greater gifts. He's trying to shake them out of their own biases. And he goes much more into this in 1 Corinthians 14. And he actually has some really incredibly practical advice on how to evaluate what is worth desiring and what might make things, you know, what might be more useful for more people, et cetera, et cetera. But his main point is this. You are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. And we would do good to remember Uh, Those other two verses. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We would do well to remember that. Today, there are 7.9 billion potential ways for the glory of God to be uniquely expressed and manifest in an individual's life. Because if every person alive today were to follow Jesus, no two giftings, no two stories, no two outworkings would be identical. There would be similarity for sure, because after all, the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things that characterize the life of a Christian. And in the end, all of these differences would look like Jesus. But it would look like Jesus in a billion different ways. And that's the beauty of the church. It's spirit-fueled unity in Christ in contradiction to the reality of our diversity. But let's start small, right? We don't have to think of it on a whole world scale. Let's think of it on the scale of our church congregation. What is the best tool for discipleship in our church, for bringing new people to Jesus and for helping people to obey everything Jesus has commanded? Well, remember this list that Paul addresses throughout his letters, right? 
this big old list. The point Paul is making is this. The best tool for discipleship in our church is this. Each individual disciple being true to who God has created them to be, serving the church and the world with the gifts that God has given them to use, and doing the work that God has given them to do. In other words, don't look for others to be the best body part that you are called to be. One of the books that I've uh, recently been reading through for our church's radical mentoring program is a book by Parker Palmer called Let Your Life Speak. And in this book, he makes an interesting observation, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you. When you get to heaven, they're not going to say, why weren't you Moses? Why weren't you Peter? Why weren't you John or Paul or any of the heroes of the faith? They're going to say, why weren't you you? The point is this. God doesn't want you to be Moses. God wanted Moses to be Moses. God wants you to be you. The you that he created you to be. The true you that only you can be. And that you can only be through a living relationship with God through Jesus. Do you know who God created you to be? The church needs you to be who God created you to be. And as a church, when it comes to discipleship, we do a lot of awesome stuff. We do Bible studies and classes and life groups and small groups and service projects and VBS soccer camps and events and worship services, and we do so much more. And when I say the church does a lot, keep in mind that I'm saying that we do a lot. You and I and everybody else who gathers here and believes in Jesus, we, the church, do a lot. Too often, the church is viewed as this external thing, this other You know, it's something that we can interact with at our own convenience, like it's some sort of a vending machine. We punch in some numbers, we put in our money, and out pops the desired product. But remember, if you believe in Jesus and if you're listening to this sermon, it means that you are a member of the body of Christ. You are not a passive customer, but an essential part of the body itself. You are not a consumer standing at a vending machine. You are a created, wonderfully, limb on the body of Christ. You get to discover who God has made you uniquely to be, your strengths, your weaknesses. You get to serve the church and the world with the gifts that God has given you to use. We are all members of the body. Each strength and weakness is important and contributes to the health of the whole. You get to do the work that God has given you to do. You get to read your Bible every day. You get to dive into the teachings of Jesus. You get to know the heart of God for this world. You get to pray about everything from the minor details of your life to the major life decisions. You get to love your neighbor. You get to serve each other. You get to get better and do the good things that God has called you to do. You get to exercise your strengths. You get to let others lead you through your weaknesses. You get to strive to be excellent in everything you do for the glory of God. You get to show mercy. You get to forgive. You get to let go of grudges. You get to give the benefit of the doubt to people, your brothers and sisters in Jesus. As an individual, you get to do these things. And as a church, your brothers and sisters in Christ need you to do these things and they need to be doing these things themselves in order to support you. So when it comes to our church's comprehensive discipleship plan, that's every age and every stage from the cradle to the grave, people taking their next best steps towards Jesus and the life of our church, we can and will and have organized and categorized and articulated what we're doing well as a church and what we need to work on. And over the next month, we're going to be talking a little bit about this every Sunday. 
And that should help you to know some good next steps for you to take in the life of our church. And it'll also help you to understand some of the specific reasons why we do what we do. But after today's sermon, I hope that you understand that you are not a passive observer to this plan. You are an essential part of any discipleship plan that we come up with because you are a member of the body of Christ. You are not a consumer. You are essential to the mission of the church just as every other believer is. This isn't a plan for the church staff or for the ministry leaders to carry out. This is a plan for everybody to work with and contribute to. This isn't a tool that will be a discipleship silver bullet solving all of our problems. This will not be the best tool for the job. This is only a tool meant to guide our collective efforts and meant to show how it's all eyes, all ears, all mouths, all noses, all tongues, all kneecaps, all elbows, and all hands on deck. So with that in mind, pull out a paper and a pen or your phone or whatever and write down these questions because there's some homework that you need to do and only you can do it. It goes like this. Three questions. What is one thing I don't understand about myself? What is one thing I don't understand about the church? And what is one thing I don't understand about my faith? I want you to, this week, spend some time, or even right now, maybe the sermon is boring, and you're like, eh, I'd rather do some homework right now. That's fine. It would be really good for you to answer these questions. Spend some time, write out the answers to these questions, because everybody will have an answer to these questions if they're being honest with themselves. And here's the real homework. Once you've got those questions answered, you can actually look into these things. There is nothing stopping you. And in fact, nobody can look into these things for you. You have to do it for yourself. That's not to say that you are on your own. You can get help to look into these things. For sure you can. You can ask a friend. You can ask a pastor, whatever. But nobody can look and pursue these answers for you. you got to do it yourself. You can do the work and you can find the answers to the questions that you have or at least start finding the answers. And you can do this actually as an act of love and service towards your brothers and sisters in Christ because everybody benefits when you are healthy and when you're operating from a place of knowing what you're about. And the whole body suffers when you have a tiny toothache, right? The same is true in the church. The whole church suffers when its members fail to look into such basic questions as these. So what's the best way to make disciples as a church? As brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the body of Christ, the best way for us to bring people to Christ and to help them into a deep relationship with Christ is to own who God has made us to be, to exercise the gifts that God has given us, and to do the work that God has called us to do. Teaching, preaching, tongues, evangelistic emphasis, worship, setting up chairs, bearing one another's burdens, celebrating together, living life together, all of these things are important, all have their roles to play, but no one person can be all of these things. We all need each other. We have our strengths and we have our weaknesses and we have our preferences and we all make our sacrifices. And all of that together, working together to point people towards Jesus is a beautiful offering to God so long as we don't become envious and jealous of others for what they can accomplish and diminish our own calling. So long as we don't expect people who are not us to behave like us. They should behave like themselves. 
So long as when we are pointing people towards Jesus, we don't become distracted and obsessed staring at our finger, right? It's hard to do, and that's a heart issue, isn't it? And I think that that's ultimately what Paul is trying to get at. The best tool for discipleship is for each disciple to really take stock of where their heart is at and make sure that it's pointing people to Jesus. And that, I think, is why after 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the body, where Paul talks about each of us being a different part of the body, different member of the body, and how each member of the body, from the really strong and the powerful to the weak, um, it, it is all important and essential, right? After that, Paul launches in to 1 Corinthians 13 which is one of the most beautiful chapters in the entire Bible. It goes like this. This is to calibrate our hearts. He says, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are, are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So, that's uh, the sermon for this week. We have the body. We have all of us are important members in the body of Christ. We all need to uh, learn who we are, how God has gifted us, our strengths, our weaknesses, all of the above. And we need to do everything that we can as individuals to contribute to the healthy body of Christ so that from an individual to our corporate expression of our lives, we can bring people to Jesus. We can make disciples, new disciples and discipling of people that are walking with Jesus already. That's what it's all about. So to that end, I got some discussion questions or some reflection questions that I think is really important for each of us to answer other than the homework I already gave you. Here it is. Here's some questions for you to think about this week. What do you think is the most important thing for a church to do? And how do you find yourself involved in making it happen? How does your love for Jesus work its way out in your own personal life, in how you church, and in your personal corporate witness to the world? And last, what are some areas in your life where you and God disagree on who he has created you to be? What do you think you could do about that? Thanks for watching and for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.